All right, this is part 41 in our discussion of law and gospel. Sunday school was super short because we got started so late because Stacy wouldn't stop talking. That's, that was the problem. Everyone here witnessed it. So, um, yeah, nobody else joined in. She just stood here and just talked and told everyone to sit down. And I was like, okay, well, whatever you say. So, um, so we have a lot to do. Um, the, the, it's always one of those things where what we, we covered in the last hour was so important. I don't want to spend this hour covering it all, but I have to because we've got to get everyone on the same page because it's absolutely critical. We have introduced thesis number seven in our discussion of law and gospel. And I can't say that this is the most important thesis, but it gets us into some very important concepts And the issue with this thesis is the way it's written, you would think that the emphasis is on those who preach and teach, but I don't want us to think that way. I want us to realize that this goes to the way we think as Christians and the way the church thinks. So even though it's presented as, hey, this is how you teach it first, we have to, we have to understand this is about how we are to think. But there's, there's much wrong thinking when it comes to law and gospel, uh, in the church. Serious flaws. And so we really need to we really need to get this thinking correct and try to understand this. So I don't want to be repetitive from the first hour, and I apologize for those who are here for the first hour or those who are listening online. But I've got to get everyone on the same page because if we miss this, then there's real, we just just get done, just throw away the whole series and just move on because we've got to get this right. All right. So everybody ready? Here's thesis number seven as it's written in the book. The word of God is not rightly divided. Now, let's stop right here. I will add this because, because this is just important. Remember, the whole premise of this is that there is a, and, and, we, and everyone knows this, the Bible speaks that there is a right way to divide the word of God, which would imply what? There's a wrong way. And we know that no matter, no matter the, the theological system, right? If you hold the covenant theology, you believe that that is the... Right way to divide the word of God. If you're a dispensationalist, you believe that's a right way to to divide the word of God. No matter what you believe, everyone believes that their way is the right way, which is very frustrating about Christianity, but everyone, everyone believes that their way is the right way. Okay, so we understand this. But for this study, clearly their emphasis is that the right way to divide the word of God is to have a proper distinction between Law and gospel. And I will say this. If, and, and, and I don't care who gets offended by this, but I'm going to be dogmatic about this. If you do not rightly divide law and gospel, if you do not rightly divide that, and you do not make sure that there is a proper distinction between law and gospel, here is, a, here is what I believe your options are, right? Your ob- options are, Law and gospel must be made distinct and we must see them as different and we must understand that distinction. And any obliteration of that distinction, we should just go back to the Catholic Church. There's no option. You can run around claiming you're a Protestant church all day. You can claim you're Reformed. You can claim all that nonsense. In reality, you're nothing more than a Catholic. You're Catholic light. You're just Catholic in disguise. Because Catholicism has never been about popes and magisteriums and robes and incense and Mary, even though that's what everyone thinks it's about. It's always been a distinction between what we believe about what? 
justification, what we believe about salvation. That's the, that's the reason the Protestant... Remember, the Protestant Reformation did not happen because of Mary. The Protestant Reformation did not happen because of robes. The Protestant Reformation did not happen because of, in, of incense. The, 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 uh, the Protestant Reformation did not occur because of all of these other, basically, surface-level things. The Protestant Reformation occurred because of what? Justification, yes? And a lot of that had to do with indulgences. Yes, I understand that. So make sure we understand that that's very, 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 very important that we understand this. So your option is, if you mess up law and gospel, I don't care what you say, you're a Catholic. I remember it was, it was in the Catholic University where I was really first confronted with this, right? Where I was basically told, hey, that lordship salvation stuff, that's Catholicism. You guys are just lying to yourself. And I was like, well, wait, what are you talking about? I'm not a Catholic. And they're like, yeah, you are. You're a better Catholic than Catholics. And then I'm like, well, that's disturbing, right? That, don't tell me that. Well, that, that's exactly what we're, we have to get this distinction. And this is really going to come into play right here. All right, so everybody ready? Here is the thesis, right? Here we go. Thesis number seven. The word of God is rightly divided. Oh, I'm sorry. The word of God is not rightly divided. Let me make sure I read this correctly. When the gospel is preached first and then the law. So let's stop right there. The first, the, and, and this thesis, they want to make, uh, make sure we understand, the word of God is not rightly divided when, when it comes to law and gospel, they're not preached in the right order. Now, I don't want to focus on the preaching when they are not thought about in the right order. And what order is not right according to them? Gospel first, law second. Now, this is obviously true first and foremost as it relates to unbelievers. So, we talked about this in the first hour. I'm going to really stress this right now. This is very important. If we present the gospel first and the law second, what do we ultimately do to the gospel? We turn the gospel into a solution for a problem it was never designed to fix. In other words, if I preach gospel first, then law second, here's what I basically do. Why do you need the gospel? Because if you, if you are depressed, if you are discouraged, if you are suicidal, if you have no purpose in life, if you're lonely, and you don't, Jesus is here to fix that problem. Because you haven't preached the law. So if you haven't preached the law, the gospel has to solve something, right? So if you're not going to present the law, then Jesus is the solution to all of this problem. This is the garbage that happens in youth ministry all over the United States of America. Is you find all teenagers usually have a million emotional issues going on. Why do they have emotional issues going on? Because all of the change is happening inside of them, right? So they're, they're, they're more, put it this way, their emotions are more to the forefront. Can everyone agree with that? All right, so you get a bunch of emotional teenagers. Typically what they do, and you know how I view church camps. I can't stand church camps. My, I abhor them because what do you do? You send your kid off to church camp and you, you do a brainwashing. It's the basic classic techniques of brainwashing. Number one, you do what? You isolate. Boom. No cell phones. Cut them off from everything. You isolate. 
Then what do you do? You indoctrinate, right? Hey, you get, this is what you're supposed to believe, supposed to believe. And then what do you do? Number three, you manipulate. How do you manipulate? Emotions, emotions, emotions. So you know all the teenagers have, you, you, can, you can just pick the normal, emo- you get a group of teenagers together, there's going to be certain emotions, right? A lack of self-confidence, depression, uh, worried about this, anxiety, fear, uh, peer pressure, bullying. You just go, you can go through them. They experience this stuff. So you emphasize those emotions and then you, and then you tell sad stories about people who have the same emotions. You get them to cry. And then what do you offer as a solution? Jesus. And Jesus is supposed to fix all of these things. And guess what? The Bible never says Jesus came to fix. All of those things. What did, he came, what did he come to do? Save us from our sins. Why did they call him Jesus? It's Christmas time. It's actually talked about in the Gospels. What? Say it. He came to save his people from their sins, not their emotions. So we, we sell Jesus as a solution to these things. And then what do we typically find out? We still have those issues, right? And the church, the church has made horrible decisions in this area, right? If someone is discouraged or depressed or suicidal, the church has been very quick to say what? You need Jesus, he'll fix it. You don't need counseling. You don't need antidepressants. You need Jesus. And guess what? It doesn't fix that problem because Jesus was never designed to fix that problem. I'm not saying that it may not help, but he came to save us from our sins. When you preach gospel first, you turn the gospel into a solution for that which the gospel was never designed to resolve or fix. That's why we have to preach law first, because once you preach law first, then the gospel becomes the solution to what? To what it's designed to fix. And what is that? The law, because the law does what? condemns us, and it reveals the sickness that we all have. What's the sickness we all have? Sin. And the gospel is the solution to that. You've got to have that order right. You've got to have that order right. If you don't, you obliterate it. The whole thing is blown up. Right? So let's make sure we have this thesis. Everyone has this thesis down, right? Law, the, the word of God is not rightly divided when we preach law and gospel in the wrong order. And the first way that we get the order wrong is we preach gospel first and then law second. Now, here's what's bizarre. Here's what's, well, well, we'll, we'll go more into that later. Well, let's just make sure we have that down. So make sure everyone understands that we put gospel first and law second. What do we turn the gospel into? A solution to problems it was never designed to fix. And you've got to listen when churches play that garbage game. I hear it in sermons all the time. Are you lonely? Are you depressed? Do you not have a purpose in your life? And it's just like, oh, Jesus is not a therapeutic, you know, a therapeutic solution to your problems. He is the Savior for your sins. Amen? All right, now. This is how, there's more to that thesis, but I'm summarizing it for now. We'll we'll, we'll flesh it out in greater detail. 
This is what they say. A wrong division of the word of God occurs when the various doctrines are not presented in their order. When something that should come last is placed first. Four types of this perverse sequence are possible. There are four types of wrong sequences. Four types. In the first hour, we covered two of them. We we barely got to the second one. I've got to get this first one down. The first way, the first type, the order is distorted, is we preach the gospel prior to the law, which we've already emphasized, all right? So the first way we get this wrong is when gospel comes before law. Now, they give us two scriptures that raises serious theological issues. The first one is Mark 1.15. Everyone look at Mark 1.15. I know the first hour you've already looked at it, but that's okay. Mark 1.15. I'm trying to move as quickly as I can. But repetition helps us re- help us remember. Okay, hopefully, hopefully. Mark 1.15. This is the passage that is read on Ash Wednesday in Catholic churches when the imposition of the ashes take place. The priests will get ready to put the ashes and they will say this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, according to the book, and we and remember, I always put these forth as hypotheses and then we test them. They say the repent is, is a command making it law and then the believe is a gospel statement. And I reject it outright. Repent and believe are both what? Imperatives. They are both what? Commands. Both statements are law statements because they're telling you what? Something to do. Now, you've got to stay with me here. This is so important, all right? This is so important because this leads to every issue that we've ever talked about in this church. You've got to hear me out. All right. That is a, that's a dangerous place to be in, right? Because this is the very essence. Repent and believe. This is how we preach the gospel. But in reality, what we are preaching is a law. How are you saved? Repent and believe. That's a command. Now, if you believe that you are saved by repentance and belief, that means that we are actually saved by what? Works. That's dangerous. So, how, what is the solution? Well, in the Reformed world, it's simple. Yeah? It's so simple. Why? God grants the repentance. God grants the belief. God grants the repentance. God grants the belief. So, therefore, we're not saved by what we do. We are saved by what God does for us. Now, if you are not reformed, then I don't care what you say, you just argued that you are saved by your works. Because most churches believe, who, how do you repent? You do so because you possess the ability to do so, meaning that you're saved by obeying a command. Now, what, how do they try to get around it? That repent and believe is not a command, what do they call it? 
No, they wouldn't use the word call. That's a reform term. Think, think back to your non-reform days. Does anybody remember your non-reform days? Okay. There we go. Say it. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. He's just inviting you to repent. And you're just accepting the invitation. But repent and believe are not invitations. They are stated as imperatives. He is saying what? Repent and believe and you will be saved. And if you then say, I can do it based off the exercise of my own free will, then you are saying that you are saved by what you do, which means you believe in a workspace system. Now, you gotta, I stress this. Let me make sure you understand. I believe that it is a works-based system. But I am not going to go so far to say that those people who think that way are not saved or that they have a false gospel. They're, think, they're theologically incorrect. I think it's dangerous. But in reality, I believe that they're believing in Jesus for their salvation. They just are so confused by it. But it is dangerous. It's very dangerous. But you see, now, here's where they walk themselves into trouble. So what they may do, if you present this to them, they say, no, 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 no. The reason we repent and believe is because of God. Well, once you give God credit for those two things, well, then immediately what question should be asked? Why doesn't he do it for everyone? They don't have an answer. Why don't they have an answer? Because they reject what? The doctrine of election. For the reform position, it's very simple. Are these commands? Yes. So, are we saved by law? We're saved by law and what? With the law, what God demands? He provides. He grants the repentance. He grants the faith. And he does so for those he has elected. Right? Does everybody understand that? Now, another very serious thing is we have to understand. Remember the Greek word for repentance, matanaeo, right? Means what? A change of mind. It does not speak of a change of behavior. If you make it, or a change of heart, if you make it a change of behavior, then you even create a more works-based system, right? Because then how does it work? All right, Bobby, you, before your salvation requires you to repent. So what does Bobby have to do? He's got to change his mind. He's got to change his behavior. And he's got to believe. What they typically say is he doesn't have to change his behavior first. He has to be willing to change his behavior. So then how do I, and which I don't even know what that means. And then, so this even becomes more works-based. And then what, what happens? How do I know if Bobby's believed? By the change of behavior. Because if he doesn't change his behavior, then he didn't really repent. Well, then how do I judge how much, how much change of behavior is required to prove that he is saved? And then, I mean, who knows? It's subjective, right? So then he just looks for some like, well, right here I changed my behavior. But if change of behavior proves repentance, then what kind of behavior should we demand? A perfect change of behavior. And has Bobby ever perfectly changed his behavior? No. So therefore, we could argue that he has never been truly saved. Which then, if we apply that to everyone, what would be the truth of all of us? No one. That's, that's no. It's a change of mind. Now, how does God change our mind? He gives us faith. If he gives me faith, how does that change my mind? Well, I go from belief or unbelief to 
Belief. I change my, and what do I change my mind about? About God, about sin. I change my mind about everything. Am I saying that there won't be changes that flow from it? There may be, but I can't judge it on that because it's God, God grants the change of mind. He grants the faith. It's all a work of God and we have to understand it that way. We have to understand it that way. So what is the correct order? Law, and how does law show up in our teaching or preaching or believing? Repent and believe. That is law. Gospel comes in. God is the one who grants the repentance and the belief. Anything other than that becomes a workspace system. Does everyone everyone understand that? Yes? We've got to have that down. And what's bizarre is, is that in some churches, they want the gospel apart from the law, really at the beginning, right? They, 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 at the, especially before lost people, they want to almost sell the gospel apart from the law. But then what happens when you become saved? They almost throw out the gospel and then just preach what? Law, 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 law. You got to either do this to prove you're saved or here's even the, it's bizarre the way Christians work, right? Once you're saved, right? Hey, before you're saved, isn't it such good news? Because before you're saved, you come walking into a church. I don't care what you've done. It's forgiven. Everything's great. But after you're saved, oh man. Now, if you mess up, what do we always say? You're forgetting, this is the, evangelicals almost like this is, I think they have tattoos somewhere on their body. Like, if you know someone's an evangelical, you just look for this tattoo. You are forgiven, but, what? There are consequences. And guess who gets to determine the consequences? We do, Right? Say, say Bobby's a Sunday school teacher, and then Bobby, we find Bobby on a Friday night drunk, running around North First without any clothes on, right? Okay? We'll say, okay, Bobby, you are forgiven, but you can never teach again. Now, I'm not saying he should be teaching the next Sunday, right? Obviously, he should put clothes on, okay? Obviously. And obviously, we want to fix the drinking problem. But there, there's nothing in Scripture that says he can never teach again. Now, we always run to what we run to is we'll run to the, the requirements. And uh, we'll just look at this real quick. I'll just show you the, the way this, this game is so messed up, the way churches play this. Go to 1 Timothy 3. Everybody knows the passage, right? First Timothy chapter three, it's the qualifications for a bishop, right? We'll just go to verse six. I'll just give you an example. We'll just go to verse six. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So pride is, is a, would we say pride is a disqualification for being a pastor? Now, if a pastor commits pride, is he disqualified for the rest of his life? Why not? Well, in most cases, you've never seen probably a pastor removed from the pulpit for pride. Probably never, right? Probably wouldn't even matter. It's literally a sin listed here. 
I don't know if you remember the whole issue with uh, Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that number one podcast that everyone should listen to. The story is just crazy, everything that happened to Mark Driscoll. But if you know, Mark Driscoll got in all kinds of trouble, right? Because what, what everyone loved about him and he got praise for, everyone then turned on him later on, which is, oh, ticks me off so much. Because Mark Driscoll was at times cussing from the pulpit. He was yelling and screaming, you know, how dare you? And all, you know, the famous quote that he's screaming at the people. He had a very abrasive, kind of a very abusive leadership style. But everyone loved it because it was edgy. And it was, and I was like, oh, I love Mark Driscoll until it just got to a certain point. And then what everyone loved then they turned on him, right? He got busted for plagiarism. In one of his books, he had plagiarized. Bad stuff, right? He had gone online using a fake account to basically attack his enemies, like call them names, and they figured out it was actually Mark. I mean, some, mess, some things that are not right, but he was edgy and everybody loved it. And then it all blew up. And then they wanted him <clears throat> gone. So they wrote a letter basically saying Mark Driscoll had committed these things. Pride, he was abusive. But then guess what they said? Even though those are things actually listed in 1 Timothy 3, they said, however, he had not disqualified himself from ministry. Listing the very things here. Isn't that amazing? Guess what? If he would have committed a sexual sin, what would they have done? He's disqualified forever. Now, why is it that you can commit the sins actually listed in 1 Timothy 3 and not be disqualified? We find sins that are not mentioned and say that you are disqualified. Who comes up with the solution? Who comes up with the rules? Now, in that text, does that text say if you've ever commit one of these, you're disqualified forever? No, it doesn't. What would it seem to imply? That if you're guilty of one of these, you're not meeting the qualifications, which could mean a temporary pause. But if the gospel is true, what does the gospel provide for anyone who falls short in these things? Forgiveness, and what kind of forgiveness? Complete and total forgiveness. But we almost do what? Once, once someone gets saved, what do we tend to do with the gospel? We, we limit it, right? And we say, well, it's only, I mean, you can, be, you can be forgiven, but, however, and we add now 900 requirements, who are we to do that? Isn't it weird how that works? Like in some cases, we remove, we remove the law and we only preach the gospel. And then, then there's another case we come along and then what do we do? We only preach the law and remove the God. How come we can't get this right? What does everyone need before to get saved? Law, then gospel. What does everyone need after they're saved? Law and gospel. But you need both. Everyone always needs both. We've got to get, I don't know why the church has so abandoned this, but we've got to get back to this. So how does it always work? At What does everyone always need first? Law. Why do we always need law first? I want to make sure we get this right. If we remove law first, what do we do to the gospel? Make it a solution 
for something it was never designed to fix. We always have to keep law in its proper place, yes? For everyone, right? You need every day to be reminded of the law. Every time you read the scriptures, well, how are you confronted with law every time you read the Bible? How are you confronted with it? What do you look for to know that you're reading a law passage? Anything that tells you to do anything. Right? And what do you say when you get done with your devotional time and you just read a bunch of passages that said, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. What is always the right response when you're done reading those kinds of passages for your devotional time? What is the right response? I don't do this. Now, I know we're not supposed to say, I can't, if, you just, if you've been listening to the podcast this week, we did three hours of review of a crazy conversation about law and gospel. It was insanity from a, the Gospel Coalition, for, uh, for crying out loud, literally obliterated everything. Gospel law, it was, the, it was the most bizarre thing I'd ever heard in my life, okay? But this is very important. We can't. Now, they argued that we cannot say that. Stop saying you can't. What was bizarre in the thing, the audio I reviewed, they, they said we can, and then guess what they ultimately admitted before it was over? We can't perfectly. If I can't perfectly, then what's the correct way to say? I can't. <laughs> right? they admit, what is wrong with Christians not being willing to admit it? I can't. Whenever I read the scriptures, what am I confronted with? Rules that I cannot keep. Ever. Does everybody understand that? Christianity. I know this disturbs many evangelicals, but I'm going to say this. Christianity gives you a test you can never pass. When I taught Bible at a high school in Omaha, Nebraska, everyone thought, oh, it's a Bible class. All the teenagers thought, this is going to be a breeze. Within the first uh, couple of weeks, well, before the first six weeks, guess what every kid in the class discovered? Well, they hated me. Not one kid was passing. And the parents were furious. And they said, how, this is not possible. I'm like, don't blame me. I can't help it that your kids have been hanging out in church with pizza parties and lock-ins, but this is a Bible class. This is not a, this is, this is, I said, this is the most important class in this entire school. This is not just some elective or like, oh, it's Bible. I'm, I'm no, I'm going to like, you're going to know the Bible. And these kids, I'm sorry, your kid's an idiot. They don't know, they don't understand anything. It's not my problem. Well, they've been going to church their whole life. Clearly, I don't know what they've been doing, but they haven't been studying the Bible. They don't know anything. Right? They don't get it. So they almost felt like, you're giving them tests they can't pass. Not my problem. It's an open book. They can't find it. They can't figure it out. It's the Bible for crying out loud. I'm not teaching kids like, never been. They've been to church their whole life. And guess they all came in all arrogant thinking, I know, yeah, you don't know anything. Whatever, just stop talking to me, right? They failed, right? They all did. They all, they all failed. They all, it was garbage, okay? But guess what? They were begging for extra credit by the end. And guess what I made them do for extra credit? The chapter summary method of Bible study. Oh, they hated my guts, okay? All right, 
But, I, but it wasn't my fault. I mean, like, like why didn't you think that it was going to be easier than those other subjects? It's the Word of God. It's more difficult than all the other subjects. Well, Christianity, really, that's the way it works. It's a test that you can't pass. Remember last week, all the illustrations I kept giving about someone else's grade being imputed to me? That's how it's supposed to work. Law, law, law. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. It's, you know, what's, guess what scares me? It's not the Christian who says, man, I can't do this. I keep failing. I keep sinning. Those are my, are, those are my people. I can hang out with them. It's the Christians who think, oh, there's a change in my life. I'm godly. Okay, I don't want anything to do with you because you're a liar. You're a straight up liar. You're insane. If you think you can keep it. We've got to understand law is supposed to show us we can't and gospel says Christ did. For whom? Uh, for those who can't, all right? So I wish, I, 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 I wish all of us as parents would have done a better job of helping our kids understand this because they can never accuse us of a, being a hypocrite because whenever they do, I'm like, you misunderstood your whole life. We never can keep it. You demonstrated it your whole life. So why did you expect me to ever keep it? None of us did. Did Israel keep it? Did David keep it? Did Abraham keep it? Did Noah keep it? Look at all the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. What do they all have in common? Failure. But for some weird reason, what are they only known for in Hebrews 11? Their faith. Because by faith we are declared to be righteous. We've got to get the order right. We've got to get the order. Law. Gospel. Law, gospel. If we remove law and just gospel, what happens to the gospel? Becomes a solution for something it's not designed to do. All right? If we remove the gospel and just give law, then what do we get? A moral system that should actually lead to what? If we just get law and we almost water down the gospel, what do we end up with? A moral system that should do what to all of us? Depress us, discourage us, lead to despair, and want us to just give up and say, forget this, this Christian garbage doesn't work. Because it doesn't without the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody should go, ooh, ah, all right, this is good stuff. All right, I'm not gonna go back to everything we said in the last hour. So then, so the first way, that this is distorted. The first way this perverse order happens is when we do what? When we preach gospel prior to the law. That's when it all gets messed up. Does everybody understand that? Everybody got that? If you hear a sermon that starts presenting Jesus as a solution to something other than sin, run for your life. Jesus is not the solution to all of those problems. He's not. I wish he was, but it's not the way it works. Everybody understand that? All right, here's number two. This perversion of the true sequence occurs when sanctification of life 
is preached before justification. When sanctification is preached before justification. Now, everybody, we started this in the last hour. Let's see how good all of you are, right? If you have a piece of paper, write justification, write sanctification, a line down the middle. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's see how good you are. Everybody, you ready? All right, here we go. All right, give me the basic elements of justification. Give me what justification is. Come on. All right, there we go. Some, some people remember from the first hour. It's instantaneous. It's instantaneous. Sanctification. Progressive. All right? Justification is what? Instantaneous. Sanctification? Progressive. All right? Second thing about justification. Okay, we'll get to that one. It's a legal declaration. It's legal declaration. We are legally declared. What do we call this theologically? Starts with an F. Forensic justification. It's a legal declaration. I am legally declared to be justified. Sanctification. Is it a legal declaration? No. It's just a it's a it's a process where we begin to work live out. All right, does that make sense? All right. Third thing about justification. Okay? It is based off the imputed righteousness of Christ. All right? It's based off the imputed righteousness of Christ. Sanctification tends to be focused on what? Our practical actions, our actions, our so-called righteousness. Does that make sense? Right? Justification is based off what? The righteousness of Christ. Sanctification is focused on our righteousness or our action. Or, or you can say it this way. Justification is based off the action of Christ. Sanctification is focused on our action. See the difference? Yes? All right. Uh, another thing about justification. Bobby said it. Monergistic. It's monergistic, meaning what? The work of one. Monergism is the work of one. Monergism is the work of one. Right? Every, everyone should be able to know this, all right? Monergism is the work of one. Sanctification, we typically view as the work of two, making it what kind of work? Synergistic or synergism. Now, some people in the Reformed world believe sanctification is monergistic. I disagree with that. If we make, if we make sanctification monergistic, what, what do we have to at least be willing to acknowledge? If we make sanctification monergistic, what do we have to at least be willing to accept? Well, now if, we, if, we make it, if we make it monergistic, what do we have to acknowledge is this. This is very, very important. If we make it monergistic, well, that's not good. We got a notification. That means the internet went down somewhere back there. Hopefully we haven't lost anything. Okay, I've just got another notification that we're going live. I'm like, that's not good. I don't need internet problems even here, okay? I've had internet problems all week. Okay, so this is very important. If it's monergistic, everyone stay with me. Then if, let's say we're, we're going to use Bobby as the example. His sanctification is monergistic. And I see all of these issues in his life where he doesn't be, seem to be sanctified. Like, once again, he's running down north first, drunk, without any clothes on. Right? Who would get the blame? God. Nobody likes to hear that. 
But if it's monergistic, yeah, he should do a better job. And Christians constantly, you see how Christians play a little game? Because even though some Christians don't say sanctification is monergistic, even though they won't say that, they will still say what accomplishes Bobby's sanctification. They will say it is God. Well, if it's God, any lack of sanctification, who gets res- who's responsible for it? God. But guess what? how we typically work it? Well, either we say Bobby's not saved. That's our go-to. That's our that, just no. That's Christians. That's the only card we ever play, right? If a Muslim does something, what do we blame? Islam. If a Christian does something, what do we blame? Well, no, we don't blame the Christian. We say that they were never saved, so therefore Christianity is not to blame. Isn't it weird how that works? Christian. It's our. It's it's like the card we keep up our sleeve. Oh wait, wait, wait. Boom! They're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. But here's the weird game Christians play, all right? So if someone is out committing a sin, and we, we, well, on one hand, we'll say that sanctification is occurring because God is working in our life. And if someone lacks it, we either say they're not saved, or what do we say? Well, God wants it to happen, but we can resist it and we can stop it from happening. Well, that's still, then that turns what? That we are more powerful than God. It makes God look pathetically weak. So you run into all kinds of problems. You've got to see the difference between these two, right? Does everybody see the difference between justification and sanctification? They're they're completely opposite in so many ways. Now within Catholicism, what do they do? What's what's the difference between Catholicism and what we claim is to be uh, non-Catholics when it comes to sanctification and justification? What's the difference? Come on, this is like the entire Protestant Reformation, people. What's the difference between the two? In Catholicism, they merge the two. So justification is what? A process. Justification has to do with what? It's not monergistic, it's synergistic. What does God do in justification? Because justification and sanctification is the same in Catholicism. God does what in justification? Come on, what is the Catholic teaching? What does he do in justification? This is literally like Christianity 101. He infuses righteousness. Remember, we, our, our view is he imputes righteousness, right? He infuses righteousness, and then what must happen? A synergistic work must occur. I must cooperate and work with it, right? So, and so it's a, pro, a process that continues. Uh, this is literally evangelical Christianity, this is almost every church in Abilene teaches this nonsense, okay? Even though they claim they don't. How do they teach it? What's the difference? In Catholicism, what happens? If you don't cooperate with it, what can occur? If you commit a mortal sin, what happens? Okay, I'm going I'm to make all y'all go to a Catholic church. If you don't get Catholicism right, you don't have any understanding. I, I, I cannot stress this. If you don't know Catholicism, then you don't know Christianity. Well... You're, you're no longer in a state of grace. No longer in a state of grace. You have to go through penance and go through steps to try to get back into a state of grace. What happens if you die and you're not in a state of grace? You go to hell. You have to be in a state of grace to get to purgatory. Purgatory is just to get you to... Purgatory is just like... You, you're, you're, your hope is purgatory. Right? Because you still have sin and it has to be... 
purged, right? It has to be purged, okay? And, and the reason I say you have to understand Catholicism to understand Christianity, because the, and the evangelical church is more Catholic than Catholics. So how do we play the game? Hey, we say you're saved by an imputed righteousness, but then we lie. Because then we claim, no, 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 no. If you're really saved, it's going to show it, which means it can't be imputed. It has to be infused because there has to be something in your life, right? You've got to change. Now, what happens if you don't change enough? We don't say you're no longer in a state of grace. Well, actually, we do. We say that you were never saved in the first place, which means you now you're lost. So now how do you get it back? You've got to repent. You've got to believe. And then you've got to do what? Show that change. Show that change, which is literally just Catholicism. Which is literally just Catholicism. Does that make sense? You see how we obliterate this entire thing? We obliterate this entire thing. It gets blown up so bad. So, 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 so listen to me. How do, we, how do we do this correctly? Right? They are claiming in the book that what's the correct order? Well, on this particular point, on this particular point, let me read, read it to you again, all right? All right, the first place is the order is distorted if we preach gospel prior to the law. The second perversion is when sanctification is preached before justification. You don't preach sanctification before justification. What always comes first? Justification. How are we justified? Okay, by faith based off Christ's imputed righteousness. I am not justified by anything I do, can do, will do, should do, may do. And it's impossible to judge my justification based off what? Practical righteousness because I am saved by an imputed righteousness. Remember the illustration from last week? If someone's grade is imputed to my account, right? I, I got below zero for my math test. Like, they're like, there's, we don't even have a classification for it. You're the dumbest person we have ever seen in the history of humankind, right? It's horrible. And I'm like, <laughs> you better back off, teacher, because look at this. Boom! I've been given someone else's grade, and it is perfect. Now, once I've been given that grade, can you test me? Why can't you test me? I didn't make the grade. If you were going to test me, who do you have to test? Who made the grade? Christianity is so whacked in its head. I don't get it. It's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I don't know what happens to Christians because here's what we do. Okay, Bobby, you're saved. All right, all right. And he's like, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. And we come along and go, <laughs> we're going to test it. So then what do we do? We test. Who do we test? Bobby. Well, guess what? If Bobby couldn't pass the test in the first place, is he going to pass the test in the second place? No. But we come along and claim he can now pass the test because of what? Because God now has given him power. Now God has given him the ability. But then we'll say, however, it can't be perfect. It is the most convoluted mess I have ever... The more Christians talk, the more I just want to go, la, 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 la. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Because it's insane. Bobby, you now have the power. You can do it. But 
you can't do it perfectly. Well, wait a minute. If I can't do it perfectly, that means there's a limit in the power that I've supposedly been given. Well, then how well does Bobby have to do it? Can anyone give you a, a, an idea? We always know the, what the rules are. Bobby can commit 9,000 sins. As long as it's not the big one. And what's the one that almost, oh, we already know the one that always brings everyone down. Anything sexual, it's the end of the world. It's like, it's fire, destroy, it's the end. He can be prideful. He can be a jerk. He can, he can not love his wife as Christ, uh, as Christ loved the church. He can be arrogant. He can, he can be a million things. Glutton, slothful, everything. He can be a liar. Uh, oh, and no, no he'll, be, he'll be in good standing with the rest of the Christians who all pat themselves on the back. I think the God that I'm not like those people and I'm not like those people and I'm not like those people thinking that we're all better than anyone. It's ridiculous. We've got to keep these apart. Justification and sanctification. How do you think we preach sanctification first? How do you think we preach sanctification first in the church? Well, first, we preach sanctification first. Are you ready? Okay, I'm going to give you the ways the church does this. Here's the first way the church preaches sanctification first before justification. Everyone here better get this one down. In fact, I'm going to make you tell me. How is, what's the first way the church preaches sanctification before justification? What's the first way that this occurs? Oh, come on. It's 2022. This has been happening since 2015 easily, going all the way back to the 80s, though, but clearly since 2015. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. You're Christians. Y'all, know, y'all got this down. This is in your DNA. Y'all know how to do this. How do you preach sanctification before justification? Come on, Christians. You're good at this. When it comes to society, when the church, in a sense, looks to society, what do we want? We want sanctification before justification. How do we want it? We want a Christian society based off what? Law. We want the Ten Commandments posted in the public school system. We want prayer in the public system, public school system. We want the Bible taught in the public school system. We want Netflix to show the movies we like. We want music to be the music we like. We don't want Disney to do anything we don't like. We want everyone to do what we want. And what are we telling them to do? To be sanctified before justification. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. When we run around to the world and say, oh, we got to get those books out of the library. We got to do this. We got to do this. We want them to live as justified people apart from justification. The church does this constantly. Boycott this, silence this, censor this, tell them what to do, tell them what to do. How dare they do this? How dare they do that? We want to give the, the, the world 900 rules. Well, guess what? Here's the thing, what I find so funny. We want to give the world all of these rules that we don't follow. We want all these rules. 
Why, why do we want to give them rules? Did Israel have rules? How did they do? Christianity gives you a test that nobody can pass. The church has got to stop giving the world sanctification before justification. We're going to say, what's their correct order for sanctification? After justification. Remember the Great Commission? What do we do first? Go and teach. What teaching is that? Evangelism. That's about how to be justified, right? Then what's second? Baptism. Because people get baptized after they are justified, right? That's how come we don't baptize babies, right? Then what's the third teaching? Look, at, look it up. Look at the Great Commission. End of Matthew. Everybody look at it. Matthew what, 28? Everybody look at it. Find it. Come on, this is like basic, basic stuff. Oh man, I can't believe we're out of time. Ah, when are they taught to observe all? Everybody see it in verse 20? Teaching them to observe all things. When do we teach them to observe all things? After evangelism and after baptism. What always comes first? Justification first. Sanctification second. Why do we run around telling the world that they have to live like justified people without justification is mind-blowing, confusing, and makes absolutely no sense. I am so sick of Christians trying to shove their morality down the throats of everyone else. Stop it. You say, well, they shove their morality down our throats. They're not Christians. They don't have a theological directive. I th- Wait, Remember, I think Christians say some garbage like, the Bible tells us what to do. But we don't follow what the Bible tells us what to do. What does every lost person need? Sanctification or justification? Justification. And what's the message for justification? Repent and believe the gospel, which is law, right? We give them the law, and the law shows them that they are what? Lost, right? Sinners. And what do they need? They don't need need to sanctify themselves. They need to be justified. This is why it drives me crazy about Christians and the constant yelling and screaming about the LGBTQ movement. I do not understand Christians. It makes no sense to me. We focus on the fact of their sexuality. Their sexuality is irrelevant. They are a sinner irregardless of their sexual preference. Does everybody understand that? I don't need them to change their sexual preference. What do I need them to see? That I need them to acknowledge the sinfulness of it. Yes. I don't need to argue with them about it. Why am I arguing? It's like, it's so weird. It's like, with, with that sin, we'll argue with them about it. Argue with them about it. Argue with them about it. We want them to say that they weren't born that way. We'll argue. And, what, do we do that with other people? Hey, pride, pride. No, don't tell me you were born prideful. Don't tell me you were born prideful. Don't, we, do we don't argue with people about pride that way? Why? Because we have some weird idea that this sin, we've got to fight this sin politically. We've got to fight this sin ide- ideologically. 
No, we don't fight the sin. We, all we, this is all we need them to do is acknowledge that it's sinful. Then guess what? You know how sinful homosexuality is? It's as sinful as my heterosexuality is, right? And when, I, when, I, when you became a Christian, did your heterosexuality all of a sudden become pure and godly? No, why? Because you're still a sinner. Guess what happens maybe when a homosexual becomes saved? Think they're still going to struggle with it? Yeah, they do. I know, I know it's a shock to everyone. They do. You know why? Because the heterosexual, isn't it weird that like if, you be, if you're homosexual and you become saved, it's almost like it's supposed to go away. While all the heterosexuals are sitting in the church, premarital sex, lust, pornography. Well, wait a minute. Why do those problems still persist? Because we're still, because what do we still possess? A sin nature. So what, what do I need to focus on? I'm not saying we ignore it as a sin. Please hear me out. Am I saying that we don't say it's a sin? I am not saying that. It's a sin just like my sin. My sin is different than their sin. I may not understand their sin. I don't understand some of your sins. Right? Some of your sins, I'm like, what's your problem? Right? For example, study the word of God to show yourself approved. Meditate on God's word day and night. Memorize scripture. Read scripture. Study scripture. You know how many Christians fail to do that? I don't understand your problem. Just pick up your Bible and read. What's your issue? I'm tired. I don't want to study. Just stop. What's your, what's your issue? I don't get it. I don't have any problem with that, right? So I can pat myself on the back and look, Ooh, look at me. Look at me. But then there are other sins that I commit that you're like, what's his problem? Who has an issue with that? Everyone's got their sin, a certain sin. So guess what we have to do when we look at sinners? I don't need them sanctified. I need them justified. Am I ignoring sanctification? No, 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 no. What am I focusing on? Sanctification must flow from justification. It must flow from it. Now, you got to be very careful because some people say justification will ensure sanctification. But then if you're not careful, you'll turn justification into an infused righteousness. You've got to be very, very careful. But it must flow from it. So the first way the church messes up is we preach sanctification to the culture instead of justification. Christians have been doing this for way too long. Where do, where do, where, where do we try to accomplish sanctification for lost people? Where do Christians try to accomplish sanctification for lost people? Voting. We're going to impose Christian morality on lost people. We're going to make them sanctified. At what? Why would you want that? Why would you want that? Because it makes you feel better. It makes you more comfortable. If, if a Muslim tried to impose Sharia law on us, what would we say? We'd be furious. We just want Christian Sharia law. It's ridiculous. I don't want them to have, you know what I want them to have? I want them to have as much freedom as long as what? 
It's not imposing on anyone else's rights or hurting anyone else. Or You know, I don't want anything. Obviously, we always want to protect people's rights. But I want to protect their freedom. You know why I want to protect their freedom? So I can have mine. I want them to have their freedom. You know what I want to be able to do? I say, that's a sin. You know what I want to be able to do? Is offer the gospel. Do I have to agree with it? Do I have to like it? No. Guess what? They probably don't like what we do. Here, uh, there's a case. I'll have to end with this. But I want to make, we're not even going to get to the other ways the church does it. But everyone understand, this is a big one, right? I'll give you an example. It was at the Christian Post. I should find the article. The comments under the article is insanity. All right. So in many churches, or many schools, churches have tried to put what they call after-school programs or Bible after-school programs, right? So that after school, the kids can learn the Bible and basically they can try to to proselytize them, try to get them saved, try to evangelize them. And they want to do it somewhere on the school campus or somewhere, hey, the kids can come to this Bible club. And Christians love that. They're like, yes, this is great. We got to do this. Now, their churches are all closed after school, but they got to do it in the public school, right? It's just insane, right? We want prayer in the public school, but the churches aren't open at seven in the morning so that the kids could come by the church to pray. Isn't it weird how this works? We always want, we, we always want someone else to do it, right? Okay, so, but, so Christians love it. They support it. We want these after-school programs. So guess who in the local city said, well, we like this idea. The Satanic Temple. They're like, we're going to have a Satanist club after school. Now, people are like, oh, just please remember, Satanists don't worship Satan. Satan is a symbol for the worship of what? Self. It's simply a philosophy. So they were going to use the school to talk about philosophy, concepts like that. Guess what the Christians did? lost their absolute minds. Grandparents are up there. How dare this? You can't do this. Well, wait. Oh, you can. Bible club is good. Satan club is bad. And guess what happened in the comments? It should be banned. They should be removed. They shouldn't even be allowed on the campus. This is a Christian nation and we will do Christian things. And if they don't like it, they can leave. I'm like, yeah, Christians absolute out of their minds. They no longer even understand. And you know where it falls apart? Sanctification and justification. You see why this study is so important? This is how we view life. Stop trying to make people Christian by sanctification. Has everyone been, has anyone ever been saved through sanctification? No. They're saved through justification. So I don't, so I, I know I just said a lot of controversial things and people are probably upset with me. Okay, so make sure we understand this. Am I saying homosexuality is not a sin? Make sure everyone say it with me. I am not saying that. I'm saying that I don't force them to live like a Christian because that accomplishes what? Nothing. Nothing. In fact, what did you just say? It will, it will just provoke rebellion. It will just re- provoke rebellion. It may make you feel better. And what do Christians always say? 
Christians have this weird idea. If we can make them live the right way through sanctification, God will bless our nation. But I thought God, what did, one of the things God said to Israel, you worship me with your lips, but your So even if we make them live out what we want by law, their hearts will still be so God still wouldn't be pleased. So why do we think that it's going to be a... Stop trying to vote your morality in other people's lives. I don't understand that. If, if you say it's immoral, guess what you can do? Not do it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Right? If there's, a, if there's a movie you don't like, guess what you can do? Not watch it. I know it's a crazy concept. You say, but my kids, my kids, my kids, my kids. I understand. Sometimes at some point, you know what you have to learn to do? Instead of hiding them, is help them understand how to process and analyze what they see. I understand that there's an age appropriate. I understand that. But we've done such a, what we want to do is just do this and do this and do this. What we have to learn to teach them is, what is that saying? And what is the message? And do we think that that's right? Or do you think that that's wrong? And let them tell you. Don't let them go, oh, the right answer is what mom says. That's, that doesn't accomplish anything. Because now they're just trying to live their life through your morality. You've got to let them help develop it, right? Help them process it. That's far better. But Christians just want everything to be the way we want it. And I don't know why we're so arrogant to think that that works. And it's obliteration of this concept. What must come first? Law. Well, let's go through the first one. Law and gospel. Then justification, sanctification. Okay, okay. Ask a question. Here's what I would say. Obviously, a three-year-old, there's a problem there. I would agree. Because I don't think the three-year-old needs to be talking about anything. Do I? Well, we'll just, we'll, we can just start with children. We'll start with children. I think we can all agree that the last thing that they need is to be dealing with this at three and the, the age of eight. It's not even really about the transgender issue. It's about, I mean, come on. What do they need at three and eight? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. So I would stand against it, not by I'm going to impose my Christianity upon them. I wouldn't have it as a real... I'll, I'll, I'll use this argument, all right? Everyone here knows I loathe alcohol, right? I loathe it, I loathe it, I loathe it, I loathe it, I loathe it. And I hate it, not from necessarily... If I was an atheist, I would hate it. So whenever I have a discussion about alcohol, I don't do so from a biblical perspective. I put the Bible away. Right? Because now I'm trying to argue with someone based off of really. I argue against alcohol based off what? Everyone here has been in me. I'm going to go with what? Just the statistics, right? Alcohol causes this problem and this problem and this problem and the alcoholism and all the destruction that occurs because of it. So I don't even bring in my religion to it, right? Because if I try to bring my religion into it, then I'm trying to impose sanctification without justification. So in that particular situation, I think a parent has every right to go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, we do have to realize this. It's what kind of a school? The word is what? 
And what's that first letter? P. So guess what? It, what, what can we not say? It's not our school. It's whose school? The public school. And guess where the public school will always go? The direction of the public, right? So if the public changes their view and believes three-year-olds need to be taught it, you can yell and you can scream, but guess what? Who will ultimately win out? The public. Now, we may not like it. Right, in some cases it's not. Typically... If it's not, if it's, if it's the minority, typically what will happen? It'll get shut down, typically. So you have every right to voice like, hey, I don't, I don't like this, I don't want this. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do this, or vote school board, there, there would be a What I would do is I would not argue it from a theological or Christian perspective. I would argue it on age-appropriate perspective, right? Because I don't think, like, I don't need a three-year-old learning about that stuff of any kind of sexuality, right? I mean, they're three, they're eight, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that in any way, shape, or form. But the public school will always, in some way, shape, or form, do what? This is what you can always count on. I don't care if it's the 1940s or it's 2028. What will the public school always do to some level? They're not going to teach in accordance to this, because what are they? They're not a Christian school. They're not a religious school. So there's always going to be something contrary to it. But in that particular case, my approach would be, do I? Like a Satan club. Because the, so on one hand, I can acknowledge, and, and just we have to realize this, whether we like it or not, society is fast moving away from anything related to biblical Christianity. So more and more of their ideologies are going to become prominent and dominant. That's where then Christians have to make a decision what to do. But you can take a stand against some of that stuff without even having to bring up Christianity. I just think that's an age-appropriate thing. I mean, come on, how is a kid going to even understand that? I mean, a kid at eight thinks they're Superman, right? I mean, like they don't, that's not the time and place. Now, whenever, now you can make an argument when they get older, then, then we may have a disagreement on when, when it's appropriate. Some may say it's never appropriate because you understand you have a certain view on it, right? What's our view? We believe it's wrong and we believe that ma- there's male and female, right? Okay, right? And we don't believe it's fluid, right? We don't believe it's non-binary. We believe it's Binary, right? So we understand that there would be a disagreement, but we can acknowledge that for some, they do struggle and they do have issues. We could get into all the societal reasons why those issues exist. Some want to blame, you can, I think you can blame both sides on the issues, right? I really do, because in some cases, we've had this issue, and I know, I know I'm going to get a little far off your question, but it relates. Some of the problems is like when I was, I was raised here in Texas, right? And guess what? I was told it was required to be a man, to be a boy. I had to like to play in the dirt. I like guns. I like animals, like, like cows and horses. And, like, and I had to wear Wranglers and I had to wear boots and all this just nonsense. And I'm like, that's not me. I'm not wearing boots. I'm wearing penny loafers. I'm going to be listening not to country music. I'm not going outside unless... Like the house burns down, and I may actually decide to stay in and die. Right? I'm not going outside. I'm not playing in the dirt. And if my hand gets dirty, I'm washing it. Like all of these things. And guess what? I was constantly told that I'm a homosexual. So that guess what was being imposed upon me? 
a gender stereotype that could have made me question my sexuality. That is a problem. And if a girl wants to be outside playing in the dirt, someone will question her being feminine. That creates problems, right? My gender cannot be determined by what I like and dislike. No, you're still a girl or still a guy. You just don't follow the stereotypes that have been imposed upon said gender. That's a problem. Now, when I say that, I usually tick off conservatives, right? They're like, how dare you? A man needs to be a man. He needs to go beat up somebody and shoot something. He needs to eat Bambi. Come on, be a man, right? And I'm like, no, sorry. That's, that doesn't make me a man. That makes me your version of masculinity. But masculinity is not determined by that. My gender, we would say, is determined by what? We would draw a correlation between gender and biology. Not by what? These stereotypes. But you see how that can confuse a kid? Like if, like if you go with my daughter Kate, I mean, she wouldn't take a shower for 500 years, right? Always playing in the dirt. Like she had her hair. She thought she was a boy. They didn't make her a boy. Guess what you don't say? You're acting like a boy. Right? Because they start thinking, well, maybe I am a boy. And guess what society will tell you? Maybe you are. See, that creates problems. Right? That creates... So sometimes we have to look at our, our fault in it. Right? Now, the other side comes along and just obliterates everything and says, well, there, it is non-binary and it can be anything. Well, that creates problems. There are lots to blame to go around in the whole issue. But society is changing. So when these societal changes, there is a time to fight, like you said, and say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> You're not teaching my three-year-old that. All we, this is what we have to do. First, make sure it's actually being taught and it's not conspiracy or made up, right? Have the actual curriculum. And then you stand against it, not on the basis of religion, but on the basis of what? In that particular case, what's age appropriate? And not only that, you do have a right. You do have a right to be, you do have a right to say what's being taught in the school. You do. Just make sure you're not imposing what? Religion upon everyone else. Because if you don't like what they're teaching you, just remember, if you're offended by what that, that being taught to a three-year-old, there's some parent somewhere who supports it. So who gets to make the decision? Okay. Well, it's supposed to be the majority. But just please note how dangerous that can be. Right? Right, nobody. But I just want to make sure we understand that the danger of the majority being in charge is very scary. Right? Because there was a time that the majority said that people of a different color can't come to their school. Remember Alabama? And it took the president of the United States saying, no, those students are coming in. And he sent in the National Guard to get those students. And have you ever seen the pictures of that? People yelling and calling them a very offensive word simply because they're trying to go to a school? That isn't, oh, that ticks me off. That's the majority being wrong. So sometimes the majority is wrong. And sometimes the minority is wrong. And that creates the whole, that's why society, that's why it's so difficult in society because that morality is being determined by what three areas? Majority, minority, or the individual? Oh, yeah. 
The majority, yeah. So the majority is not always right either. So in a public school system, it becomes very difficult because you're like, no, I don't want that. And there can be five other people who say, we do. And you could say, but you're the minority. And then they could say, yeah, how many times have the majority been wrong in history? A bunch, a bunch. So you see, that becomes a very, that's a very difficult, it's a very difficult thing. So what I would tend to do, I'd be like, well, if you want to teach that, how about we do this? You teach that in a special class, and the parents who want to allow it, who want it, can opt to have their kids learn it, and for the rest, we can opt to have our kids not learn it, and then both people are happy. There's got to be a way to pull that off. There's got to be a way to pull that off, right? Because I know of different times when I, in the 1980s, when we did sex education, some parents did not want their kids learning it. And guess where those kids were sent? To the library. So now some Christians would not like my compromise there, but why do I always like compromise? Because I want people to have freedom and I want the public to be able to do I want to be able to work it out because I don't want to impose my morality upon them. But guess what? I don't think I have to compromise my morality for them. So how do we balance that out? Does that kind of help? But it's a good question. It's a very good question because it does relate to sanctification and justification. Like how how does it work? We got to find that balance. All right, great questions. We went way long, but guess what? Sunday school went way short. My wife is back there probably saying bad words, but guess what? She's the responsible for why Sunday school was so short. So now she has to pay for me. Okay, stop taking up. Come on, work with me here, okay? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, we live in a, a difficult world that has abandoned biblical truth. And it creates major struggles for us trying to figure out what to do and what not to do. Every Christian, all of us, Lord, every single one of us, we struggle trying to figure out the best way and how to handle it. And we won't always agree. And we may always try to struggle. But I pray that we would just do our best to apply biblical principles to very complicated problems in our world. And that we at least do our best to handle ourselves biblically and never mess up the correct order between law and gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...